morning. <clears throat> Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be reading as a church uh, through the majority of John chapter 9, uh, continuing on our, our series in the book, The Gospel of John. Um, this week, we're going to be reading the account of Jesus healing a man who had been born blind. Uh, and then next week, we're going to be reading the account of the investigation of that healing uh, by the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Um, last week, we read these words from John chapter 8, verse 58. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, Before Abraham was born, I am. That statement, um, those words, caused the people around him, the Pharisees, the religious teachers of the law, to pick up stones to throw at and kill Jesus. Because with those words, Jesus is taking the name, I am, Yahweh. He's taking that name that God gave to Moses at the burning bush to describe who God is. He's taking that name and attributing it to himself. Jesus is saying, that is me. Before Abraham was born, I am. That is me. That is my identity, my nature. I am God. That's what Jesus says. This claim that he makes that we read of last week is, is blasphemous. Unless you are God, of course. Blasphemy brought with it the punishment of death, which is why they picked up stones. So that's where we're at. That's the, sit the situation into which chapter 9 happens. So we're going to read together uh, the first 12 verses, John chapter 9. Uh, and then next week we'll read from verse 13 to 34. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Father God, we give you praise and thanks for your word um, we give you thanks that we can open up uh, this book in front of us and read uh, directly from you. Um, I pray that you'll speak to us uh, spiritually, miraculously, into our hearts, challenge us, encourage us, uh, encourage us as we read uh, this morning, as we consider um, what, what the meaning of this passage is for our lives. Amen. As we've been working our way through the book of John as a church, we're seeing the fullness and the reality of who Jesus is. 
And as we read last week, Jesus is God. This action of healing the man born blind, followed then by the subsequent reaction to the healing that we're going to be reading of next week, is a perfect example of who Jesus is, what he can do, what he has done, and how people have and do respond to him. I'm sure that I'm not the only person here who was raised uh, under the, the theology of Pinocchio, as I like to call it. Uh, the constant threat from my mum that if I was ever to tell a lie, my nose would grow and everyone, and everyone would know that I told the lie. An idea, of course, informed completely by the Disney story of uh, Pinocchio and then used liberally by mums the world over, I think. Uh, we're just going to watch how that, how that happened to Pinocchio and how that theology of Pinocchio came about. Pinocchio, why didn't you go to school? School? Well, I... Uh, go ahead, tell her. I was going to school till I met somebody. Met somebody? Yeah, uh, two big monsters with big green eyes. Why, I... Monsters? Weren't you afraid? No, ma'am, but they tied me in a big sack. You don't say. And where was Sir Jiminy? Oh, Jiminy. Uh, leave me out of this. They put him in a little sack. No. Yes. How did you escape? I didn't. They chopped me into firewood. You haven't been telling the truth, Pinocchio. Perhaps. Oh, but I have. Every single word. Oh, please help me. I'm awful sorry. You see, Pinocchio, a lie keeps growing and growing until it's as plain as the nose on your face. She's right, Pinocchio. You better come clean. I'll never lie again. Honest, I won't. Please, Your Honor. Uh, uh, I mean, Miss Fairy. Give him another chance, for my sake, will you? Oh. Well, I'll forgive you this once, but remember, a boy who won't be good might just as well be made of wood. Uh, a cracking story. Unfortunately, neither the theology nor the logic of it stands up. Uh, I'm sure, much to the sadness of my mum, who deployed that threat liberally when I was growing up. Um, but actually, as we can see from the passage that we've read in John, uh, in John chapter 9, um, there was a, calming, a common understanding of how sin works, kind of like the theology of Pinocchio. I'm not sure if they had Disney back then. Um, but the, this idea that doing something wrong brings the result of punishment. Uh, and there, that was a common understanding of uh, how sin worked in ancient times. As we read, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents that he was born blind. A common way to understand a situation like this at the time, that this man was born blind, surely that can be explained by a sin that either he committed, presumably in the womb, or by a sin that was committed by his parents. That a terrible thing must be explained by a terrible sin that he was blind because someone sinned and that caused his blindness. But Jesus' response in what we read, 
was no, that's not how this works. That's not how God operates. There is no biblical basis for this belief at all. Now, in the Bible, there are a few examples of God punishing, specifically punishing the sin of a people. Uh, We read that in Genesis chapter 19 with Sodom and Gomorrah. But there is absolutely no suggestion that each individual's well-being and prosperity is related to their personal sin. The Pinocchio idea of cause and effect is is just a bit too simplistic, and it's not biblical. Uh, A a famous example of this kind of thinking is the the belief of karma, that what goes around comes around. Uh, In fact, that belief system would even ask of this, this man who was born blind, what might he have done in a previous life that caused him to be blind? Sometimes when things go wrong in our lives, our first, our first thoughts have a habit of going to, why is God punishing me? Well, the good news is that nowhere in the Bible is there any teaching or understanding that matches the idea that pain or physical wellness Unwellness is a direct result of a person's sin. The Bible uh, provides us with with this reality uh, through the book of Job. The book of Job is a biblical allegory explaining the role of sin in our world. In, In summary, Job has it all and then loses it all. And in the midst of that severe loss, Job continues to give glory to God. His friends come along and they ask him what sins must he have committed for such loss to happen. Job continues to give glory and praise to God while his friends are telling him to curse God for punishing him. At the end of that book of the Bible, Job is rewarded for his devotion to God in the midst of his pain and suffering. God honors him for that. It's important for us to get a correct understanding of the way that sin works. The reality of it. Sin is in our world. Ever since Adam and Eve, sin has been an unavoidable reality. Because we know that everyone who has ever lived except for Jesus sins, we can say with certainty that this man had sinned and also that his parents had sinned. But Jesus makes sure that his disciples understand that it's not for that reason that this man was born blind. Rather, he was blind because the world in which he lives is broken. Romans 8 tells us that. It says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Sin is in our world. It's a reality of our world. The weight of it causes every part of creation to groan in pain and suffering. That's the reason that there are illnesses, that there is hurt, there's pain. That's the reason our bodies are failing and imperfect from the moment we're born. It's the reason there are natural disasters, environmental failings. There's greed and corruption, wars and division. All of that because sin has reached every part of creation. And we have to watch with our own eyes the impact of it every single day in our own lives and in the lives of others. The reality of our world. 
Sin is pervasive and it's destructive. Karma doesn't exist. Pinocchio noses don't exist. Well, what we have is a broken world and the result of sin is visible in almost every part of it. I do have to say, however, that although God doesn't cause punishment or suffering for a person's actions, there are often earthly impacts for, that are caused by our sins and our sinful actions, our sinful lives. For example, a husband who has an affair will likely cause massive amounts of damage to his spouse, potentially any children that they might have. That sin can cause broken relationships, broken trust, broken hearts, generational hurt and mistrust. There is no doubt that the earthly fallout from human sin has a significant role to play in the mess that our world is in, and it can leave scars for generations. Despite this, there is no biblical basis for the understanding that a person's sin directly causes physical pain or suffering for themselves or their children. Our world is broken, but there is a solution. And in reading through the book of John, we are reading of where that solution is found, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And in this passage that we've read, Jesus is taking the attention away from the sin and is putting it on the solution. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Of course, Jesus is not saying that this man or his parents were sinless, that they had never sinned, but simply that this situation was not caused by their sin. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. Let's not look at the cause, let's look at the solution. Let's see what God can do and how God can be glorified in the result. That rather than looking at what has gone wrong, let's see what God can do in this situation. And Jesus says, look at how God can be glorified in the midst of this. Jesus is suggesting a change of mindset in how we respond to difficulties like this. That's what we're going to be reading of over the next two, two weeks. How God can be glorified in the midst of difficult situations. It's easier said than done. We don't often know that until we are in the midst of a situation how we are going to respond. Will we turn to God or will we run from him? Will we blame him for the situation or glorify, glorify him for his eternal goodness? As a church, we have all been able to witness the incredible faith and devotion of an amazingly brave young woman who is part of our family. Beth has lived with the pain and agony of scoliosis for the past year. She has, gone, she has undergone significant and serious surgery. She has had and still has a long period of recovery ahead of her. I don't think that any of us really have much of an idea of what Beth has been through. But for those of us that know her, that have spoken to her, that have spent time with her, or follow her on social media, we will know this much, that Beth has regularly given glory to her God. 
Throughout the past year, Beth has continued to give glory to God, continued to declare his goodness. She has put her faith and her hope on display for all to see. I've been inspired, and I'm sure that I'm not the only one by Beth and her determined faith over the past few months. She has given glory to God over and over and over again. In every circumstance, in every moment, in every life change, in every loss, every success that we have, every high and every low, we get the opportunity to give God glory in the way that we choose to respond to the things that life throws at us. Over these two weeks, we're going to read how this man glorified God. First, through being healed by Christ, and then simply by sharing his story, the story of how his life was changed completely by Jesus. In verse 5, Jesus says this, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We've spoken in the past few weeks about this truth, about who Jesus is as the light of the world. How as the light of the world, Jesus Christ was the one to bring salvation, understanding and truth. That he was to bring to light the knowledge of God to a sinful and broken world. That Jesus is to change lives saved from sin. He was to open eyes and hearts. This story that we're reading of is the, this exact truth being played out. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. I think we can all agree that it's a strange story. Jesus making a ball of mud and out of a ball out of mud and saliva and smearing it in this man's eyes is actually even stranger when we can go back to the, the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, and read that Jesus healed two men just by touching them. So if Jesus can give sight to a person who has no sight simply by touching them, then why did this man need the mud pie for his healing? Clearly, Jesus wanted this man involved in the process. Clearly, while Jesus is the one who heals and has the ability to heal with a touch, there was a reason that he sent the man off to wash his own eyes. I think that that was because Jesus wanted this man to take action, to be involved in his healing, to be obedient to Jesus' instructions. This is how Jesus heals those who call on his name. This is how new life is found in Christ. Life free from sin and free from shame. A life of complete fulfillment, complete freedom. To become a Christian means to be made new. To be given a new identity. Just like Jesus could have given this man sight without having to create this ball of mud and send him off. Just like Jesus could have given him sight with just a touch, God also, the creator of our world, the administer of salvation, could, 
with a click of his finger, gives salvation to everyone who needs it. Gives give forgiveness to anyone without asking. God can wipe away all of our sins and give us eternal life. And wouldn't it be better for all of us if God was to just do it without us having to ask? Why does God not take the decision out of our hands for our good? What the Bible tells us over and over and over again is that we are given the opportunity to make that decision for ourselves. That God gives us the opportunity to ask him for salvation, for new life. He gives us the opportunity to choose, to make a decision, to be involved in the process of choosing life. And if none of us had the opportunity to choose, then we're no better than robots. God, in his grace, allows us to choose to live for him. Just like the man that Jesus gave sight to, we have a part to play from the very beginning. We have to want to be healed. We have to want to give up our sinful lives. We have to want forgiveness. We have to go. We have to obey. The Christian life starts with obedience. In his grace and goodness to us, God gives us the choice to live for him. And in allowing us to choose, gives us the opportunity to obey him. Why would he do this? The Bible tells us everything that God does, he does for his own glory. Everything that God does is for his glory. He wants us to choose to be in a relationship with him for his glory so that we will worship him. We have the invitation to new life through Jesus Christ by asking forgiveness for our sins. Ephesians 2 and verse 8 tells us that this is a free gift from God, that he gives us new life, complete salvation from sin, freedom from sin and from shame, that he gives us union and relationship with himself. He does all of that so that he will be glorified, so that we will worship him for his goodness. That we will say, how good is God? Look at what he has done. This happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Yes, Jesus could have given this man sight and not required him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. But there was an expectation on him to follow and obey what Jesus asked him to do. Jesus invites us into a relationship a relationship that gives us the opportunity to know the God that created us and to discover what it means to have a full and fulfilled life in Christ. I read a fantastic book recently called Union with Christ by a pastor, Rankin Wilborn. He wrote his book to describe how good it is to be in a relationship with Jesus, not one day in the future when we get to heaven, but from the moment that we give him our lives. This is, what he, this is what he writes. Union with Christ means the reality of knowing God and living in communion with him doesn't begin when you die. Eternal life begins in this life when Christ joins his life to yours. We can have fellowship with God through Christ. 
we can begin to experience heaven in our lives here and now. The point here is that from the moment that we come to know Jesus as our Lord, as our Savior, we are invited into a new and full life. And in that life, we have been given so much, not just one day in the future, but right now. Right now, you can have life. You can have intimacy. You can have meaning. You can have fulfillment. You can have freedom. You can have liberation from sin. You can be filled with the power of the Spirit, equipped and gifted to serve. You can have purpose and meaning and mission, not one day in the future when this world comes to an end or when we die, but right now. In our passage, Jesus changed this blind man's life by giving him sight and opening his eyes. We are told here in verse 8 that the change was so significant that even those who, who knew him didn't recognize him. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, others said, no, he only looks like him. Just consider for a moment the life change this man will have experienced after this encounter with Jesus. Can you perceive what it would be like to have lived your entire life without the ability to see, not having any idea what sunsets are like, never seeing mountains, having no idea what your family look like, and then in an instant, the world comes to life. What we read is literally a life-changing moment. He is now a completely different person. He has different experiences of life. His relationships are different. His attitudes are different. He is unrecognizable. The joy and the wonder and amazement that he must have felt in that moment. And then by comparison, do you have any idea what a life change happens when a person comes to know God? When a person gives their life to Jesus? 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us this. If anyone is in Christ... That means if anyone is a Christian, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. Not that one day in the future there will be new. The new creation has come. Brand new, fully functioning new creations. Set free from sin, from the weight of sin and found secured in Christ. I want all of us this morning to leave here with a greater understanding of how life-changing it is and should be to know the Son of God and have a personal relationship with him. And so my question is, do you know this personally? Are you living in the full reality of this? You may not be a Christian here this morning. I can tell you that this is what it means to be one, to have true and meaningful life to be set free and be known by the God who created you. It is literally life-changing and it's all for God's glory. Or you might be a Christian and you might know this well. You might be living in the fullness of it every single day. It gives you life and daily fulfillment. It brings peace and joy to know the God that created you and holds you. 
But I also imagine that there are a number of us who know God, have found salvation in his son, but are currently just struggling to live that out, to live like that's really true. This is the category I find myself in so often. We can have forgiveness for sins, salvation for eternity, and yet fail to take hold of the new life that God offers from the moment that we find new life. The moment that we give our lives to him, the moment that we're given a new identity. There might be unrepentant sin in our lives. There might be deep-rooted apathy. We might struggle to find joy. We might be holding on to bitterness from the past. Or we might just not even believe that we deserve the good things that God has in store for us and for our lives. If that accurately describes the current state of your relationship with God at the moment, then I pray this morning will be an encouragement to you to take hold of the fullness of who Jesus Christ has saved you to be. J.I. Packer wrote this in his book, Knowing God. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Salvation alone, to be saved from sin, is an incredible thing. What grace, what a wonder. But the Bible tells us that salvation is only a part of what God has for you. He also gives new life in relationship with himself. To be united to himself. To take salvation and not take hold of the new life that we've been given means that we are missing out on so many blessings from God. The Bible tells us that those who know Christ are saved once and for all. They are adopted into God's family. They share in a heavenly inheritance. They have a place in heaven prepared just for them by Jesus Christ himself. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. That God lives within them, temples of the living God. Those who, knew, who know Christ are given the identity and perfection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. They are children of God. They are empowered and equipped with spiritual gifts to serve God. They have direct access to the Father through the Spirit. We can approach his throne with confidence and certainty and knowledge that we are known and loved by a God who is near and personal. If you are a Christian, these things are true of you. What amazing promises. We should wake up every day and meditate on them, remember them, consider these things, start our day with a new reminder of, with a reminder of who our new identity is, the life that it brings. Take that into each day of our lives. Make that shape how we approach our day at school or college or work, how we, sh how we spend our time with our friends and our families. We should allow our, our new identities to shape and form our decisions. And most importantly, allow it to shape how we think of ourselves. This man's new life started with a moment of obedience. 
Jesus told him to go and wash the dirt from his eyes. Once he obeyed and washed, his eyes were opened and his new life began. The Christian life begins with obedience, acknowledging our sinfulness and need for a savior, obeying his command to repent, to turn away from our lives of sin and ask him to make us new. That requires obedience, doing what he tells us, like the man who was sent to, the, to wash the mud out of his eyes. Jesus said these words back in John 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the Christian life begins with obedience. But then the Christian life requires obedience every day to live in the way that we've been called to live to become more like Jesus. As Peter says in 2 Peter, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Obedience is a significant part of our faith and is necessary for us to grow. Obedience is given our lives to God obedience in giving our lives to God has to be followed with daily obedience to live for him. Every day we have to choose that we're going to live for him, that we're going to live in the full reality of our new identity. Obedience means regularly reading God's word, not just to tick a box, not to, to gain knowledge, but because when we read God's word, the Holy Spirit speaks to us, speaks into our lives, helps us to grow. It tells us and reminds us of who God is, what he has done, and how his goodness impacts us. Obedience means praying regularly, not because it scores us points with God, but because it grows our relationship with him. It grows our relationship with the God who created us to be in a relationship with him. Obedience means going to church and having fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's not a chore. It's not something we do because we've always done it or we've got nothing else to do on a Sunday. It's something that we do to give him glory and praise. Obedience means serving, putting our God-given God gifts to use in the mission of bringing God's kingdom to our world. Obedience means worshiping in everything that we do, in the way that we live our lives. Obedience means forgiving in the way that we've been forgiven. Obedience involves running away from sin and temptation. Obedience means handing our futures, our plans, our hopes over to God and asking him to direct our lives. Obedience means sharing our faith, sharing the hope that we have, with people that don't know him. Obedience means living in the fullness of the gospel, in the freedom that salvation from sin through Christ brings. Not living in the full new identity that Christ has given us as Christians would be like this man spending the rest of his life with that ball of mud still in his eyes never going to the pool to wash, never following that command to go, never seeing what new life Jesus was offering him if he obeyed the command to go. 
This man was used to bring glory to God through his situation. We will all throughout our lives have opportunities to do this over and over and over again. Opportunities to bring glory to God through our situations. Just living our lives in the fullness of the gospel and the freedom of Christ, just doing that brings God glory. Let's make sure that we take all the opportunities that we are given to bring glory to God in our lives. Let's pray. Father God, we are amazed and astounded by your goodness to us. We are in awe of how much you've done for us. We give you praise that new life is found in your son, Jesus. We give you praise that we can know the God who created us in a personal and intimate way. We give you praise that we are made co-heirs, that we are made sons and daughters of the living God. I pray, Father God, that as we live our lives this week, as we go into this week seeking to live for you, that we will live in the fullness of the freedom of the gospel. I pray that you'll give us opportunities to serve you, to worship you, to live for you. I pray that you'll create situations where we can make you known and how we live, how we respond, how we act. We give you praise, Father God, because you deserve it. We give you the glory that you deserve. Amen.